0: Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we express our gratitude that we can be here. We're grateful that we have your word. We're grateful that we have your word in our own language and that we have such a rich heritage uh, within our country of and within our English tradition, English-speaking tradition of theology and theological vocabulary that we may be able to uh, accurately, precisely describe and discuss the things that uh, we study in your word. Father, we are mindful of the fact that your word has been given to us for a purpose, and that is to teach us how to think and prepare us uh, to face the issues of life, that we may be able to make wise decisions, and that we may be able to glorify you in our lives. Fathers, we study your word this evening. We pray that you would use the things that we study to help us to better understand your word and your will for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts 2. Our Acts 1, rather, Acts 1, and we are continuing uh, our study that I began last time on the second half of the first chapter of Acts, which focuses on this decision that Peter makes to replace Judas, who by this time has been dead for about six weeks, and as a disciple with someone else. Now there are those who believe that this was not an appropriate decision, not a right decision. Maybe it was bad timing, and there are others that believe that this was uh, this was a good decision, and that this was in keeping with um, Old Testament revelation and Old Testament practices. And since uh, none of the disciples at that point really had any idea what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit would descend and that spiritual gifts would come, there would be the birth of a new organism called the church, that this was perfectly acceptable for Peter to make this decision. And having had discussions here and there with folks over the years, I started doing a little more detailed look at this, having always taught that I didn't think that Peter had a good decision, made a good decision here, but recognizing that there's a lot more going on in this than what meets the eye superficially. And so I started digging into this a little more. And there's a lot of interesting things that are going on in this passage that we need to learn. And we need to learn them not only because they're present in this chapter, but it, I think it sets the stage for being able to intelligently understand what comes up in the second chapter of Acts, and whether you fully comprehend all of this or not, Acts 2 especially, Acts 1 is not so much, but Acts 2 especially is a uh, enormously controversial chapter. It's by going to Acts chapter 2 and... And the giving of the gift of tongues that, of course, was understood by those who began the charismatic, or rather the Pentecostal movement, uh, that looked look to Acts chapter 1 as a pattern for normative behavior in the church, that is, speaking in tongues. And so that's a major issue in Acts chapter 1, I mean Acts chapter 2. Uh, second major issue that comes up in Acts chapter 2 has to do with the fact that Peter uh, explains what has just happened in terms of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the disciples. And another question thats that I'll get into is how many actually received the uh, uh, gift of tongues or spoke in languages that they had not previously studied or learned. Uh, how many actually spoke on that day? Was it 120 or was it uh, 12? But when Peter explained it in 2.16, he says, But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And so he seems to be identifying what happens on the day of Pentecost with uh, what Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 3. Now there are basically three answers to that, uh, to the question of, of, uh, what exactly did Peter mean. The first answer is that, that Peter is saying that this is precisely and exactly the fulfillment of what uh, what, what Joel said. Problem with that is nothing that Joel predicted happened on that day and nothing that did happen was prophesied by Joel. But if you take that view and if you understand Joel in context, then Joel is talking about something that occurs just prior to or at the time of the day of the Lord, which in the Old Testament describes the time when uh, the Lord is going to come redeem Israel and rescue Israel from national uh, calamity as they seem to be on the edge of complete and total destruction. And then uh, the Messiah will establish his kingdom on the earth and rule as the uh, son of David, uh, literally from Jerusalem and rule over all the nations. And we've studied many of those passages in the past that relate to that, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, uh, many others that indicate the the future rulership of the uh, Messiah as promised in the Old Testament. So if Acts 2 is talking about a literal fulfillment, then that would mean that the kingdom has come. Now those who say that, yes, the kingdom has come, Recognize that it's not physical. So they have to change the meaning of the kingdom to a, from a physical kingdom to a spiritual kingdom. And that's essentially the position of amillennialism. Ah meaning, being a Greek, uh, prefix equivalent to the English prefix un meaning a negation. And millennial, which is built on a Latin word. I don't know who combined a Greek prefix with a Latin root. Somebody who has coined the word for us. And so now we all act like we're ignorant. Uh, amillennial means no literal thousand-year reign. So that's, that's the amillennial view. Then there's the view that, uh, well, we recognize that there are some things that happened here that don't quite fit Joel, and things that Joel said that don't quite fit here. But in some sense, this is fulfilling Joel. So in some sense, the kingdom came, we don't know what sense, but in some sense it came or it came partially or it was inaugurated, but it's gradually coming in over uh, the period of the age in which we live and, and won't come in its fulfillment in all of its fullness until uh, Jesus returns and establishes the kingdom. That view is called the already-not-yet view, and uh, it's already here, but it's not yet here. And that is a very popular view, and that already-not-yet idea permeates lots of stuff that goes on in the church today. A lot of ideas in worship and contemporary worship have been uh, profoundly impacted by an already-not-yet view, yet most people don't know how those things connect at all. It relates to a lot of later developments within the so-called Pentecostal charismatic movement, especially what later became known as the third wave of the Holy Spirit or the Vineyard or Signs and Wonders movement. Then it also plays a big part in this new movement that came out of Dallas Seminary and a few other places, Bob Soce out at Talbot Seminary in in, uh, uh, Southern California and a couple of other men who came up with this new hybrid called progressive dispensationalism, and that word progressive got tagged on their name because they still, unlike dispensationalists who had always believed that the kingdom was not inaugurated on Pentecost but was postponed until Jesus comes back, these dispensationalists believed that the kingdom would come in progressively over time they bought into the already not yet view and so that's a big issue there and then of course there's dispensationalists who say this isn't a fulfillment at all it's not fulfillment language at all all peter is saying is this is like what joel said so to understand and, and then joel quotes from several old testament passages in that particular message or sermon that he gave that's recorded in acts chapter two so to understand all these things, it's important for us to really understand what is meant in the New Testament when Old Testament passages are quoted. I concluded with this last time. In the last um, 10 or 15 minutes, we just kind of uh, did a rapid race over this material. And in talking to a couple of people afterwards or since then, uh, they suggested that I slow down and go back over it again because it is so crucial to understanding and being able to read your Bible with knowledge and understanding. In fact, what I suggest, and when I first learned of this uh, num- many, many years ago, uh, it made a huge difference in just how I would read the Bible because you can pick up almost any English text and when you are reading through the New Testament, you will see that there are verses that are in italics. And those verses that are in italics are verses that are they're in italics because they're quotations from the Old Testament. We saw a lot of these in our study in Hebrews. They're quotations from the Old Testament. And so to uh, understand how the writers are using them, sometimes you'll go back and you'll read the passage in the Old Testament and you'll go, hmm, how in the world did they do that? And see, so, and, and there are many scholars and students of the word have asked that question over the, over the centuries, and some have said it's just some sort of a mystical, uh, use of the Old Testament. Uh, some say that there's, uh, they're, they're just sort of doing, uh, what I like to call Rorschach exegesis. They're just going to some passage that has a word or a phrase that's something like what they want, and they just grab it and apply it without any relation to the original context. Uh, lots of different ideas like that. And so uh, this is a great thing for you to learn so that once you get a list of this or get it in your mind, then when you're just reading through the Bible or you're doing your own Bible study, you, you run across a verse that's a quote from the Old Testament. You can go back and read the Old Testament context and then ask yourself, well, which of these four fits the scenario? And so since we'll be doing this a lot in the coming chapters, I think it's important that we really do understand uh, all that is going on here. So we get into Acts chapter 1. Uh, we read in verses 12 through 14 that after Jesus ascended, the disciples went back to Jerusalem, which mean, meant they descended uh, from the top of the Mount of Olives. Which takes you down through the Kidron Valley and across the Kidron Valley and up into the Old City of David and up to the, just to the south of the, of the, what is now the Temple Mount. And somewhere in that area, just to the, uh, just to the west of there was where you had, uh, uh, a number of buildings during the time of Christ. And no, there's a couple of places today that are thought to have been, uh, where the upper room was located, but nobody knows for sure. Uh, on a, when, whenever you lead a tour to Israel, we, I always talk about the fact that there's, a, on a scale of one to five, one means it's just pure made-up legend. Five means we're pretty certain this is exactly where this happened. Um, the, these identifications of where the upper room was located somewhere around a two. So it just uh, has no certainty whatsoever. That's why there's two or three different places that are thought of uh, to be the location for the upper room. It was just typical of any house at that time that they were had two stories, and the upper room was usually where the guest room was located, and then they would have on the roof, the roofs were flat, they would have a, an area up there where during the summer when it's hot inside, heat rises, Many times they would uh, sit up on the roof or they would sleep up on the roof because that's the only place where it was really, uh, was really cool. And the upper room was a place where, uh, sometimes you, if you had, uh, a number of guests, that is where you would meet. And so many houses had this kind of a, a larger room upstairs. So we really can't identify this. Uh, with any precision this is the same location where Jesus had celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples the night before he went to the cross and apparently because they were all from Galilee whoever owned the house made it available to them and this guest room available to them and so this basically became a dormitory for um the 11 disciples and since it was where they seemed to have been staying during this time this wasn't where the 120 stayed all the time this was uh, just uh, for the 11 and yet there were those that would come there and meet with them during the day uh for prayer uh Mary Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of Jesus uh his brother Jesus brothers who of course were not followers of his during his lifetime but after the resurrection when he appeared to them Uh, They believed that he was the Messiah prophesied from the Old Testament. And so verse 15 simply states that in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. He's taking a position of leadership, which is appropriate for Peter. He was uh, uh, in a position of leadership. He and James and uh, John. were very much in the inner circle. They were the ones to whom Jesus spent spent most of his time. They were the ones that he uh, taught the most in a more intimate environment. And so Peter takes a stand uh, when all are together, about 120, and he addresses them in verse 16, and he says, "Men and brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled." Now this is the uh, this is the Greek word, plerao, which is a typical word that is used in fulfillment passages. And it has a number of meanings, as I showed you last time. He says, this this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So he's not really quoting a specific verse here, But he is saying that David, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, spoke about Judas. Now you can do a concordance search on the word Judas and the name Judas, and you don't find the name Judas anywhere in the Old Testament. So the question is, where did the, where in the Old Testament did it speak of Judas? But before we get into that, I want to just review something very quickly. I want you to turn with me to, uh, First Peter, or Second Peter, rather, Second Peter, Chapter One. Second Peter, Chapter One. And we'll just look at verse, start at verse nineteen. peter's been talking about the fact that, that they did not receive uh, that they 're not believing something that's just a a really slick made up story, and that 's one of the evidences that confirms the validity and the truth of the, of the of the disciples when Jesus was crucified, they scattered to the four winds. The last thing in the world they wanted was to was to be identified with Jesus. And to be put on a cross by the Romans, so they scattered, they hid, and they were afraid. They were they were fearful. Peter denied uh, that he even knew knew Jesus uh, three times. He denied him. But what gave them the courage to come back together and to, for Peter especially on the day of Pentecost, to to preach such a tremendous message uh, before everybody that's there uh, in light of his. Cowardice in the previous, pre, at the time of the crucifixion. It is that they saw a man who was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. They felt his body. They had empirical confirmation. They saw the, star, the scars in his hands and in his side, and they knew that he had indeed been dead, and he was raised from the dead, and so there was that empirical evidence. Not only that, but as Jesus opened their eyes to an understanding of the Old Testament and took them through the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, or in the Hebrew Bible from Genesis to Second Chronicles, he showed them how all of the prophets spoke about him. And all these prophecies that were in the Old Testament spoke about the Messiah. And there's were over there's been identified over a hundred distinct prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled precisely and exactly and literally in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter refers to this, and he, and he talks about verse 18. He mentions the fact that they had empirical confirmation of this when they heard the voice of God when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John. They heard the voice of God from heaven say, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. They heard that voice. If they had had a digital voice recorder, they could have recorded it that day, and they could play the voice of God. This was not something they heard in their heads they didn't have a uh, a group hallucination. They actually heard an external voice, the voice of God. It has a, a, a objective reality. So he says in verse nineteen. So we have the, predic- the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is a talking about an allusion to the future. Uh, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Then he says in verse 20, knowing this first, and that should be understood as a causal participle because we know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, he's not talking about the reader making a private interpretation. He's talking about the prophet interpreting the information that God gave him. He's saying that the prophet does not Uh, interpret the revelation that God gives him on his own, but he just gives it directly as God gave it to him. That no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. This is completely in accord with what the Old Testament teaches. The tests of a true prophet in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 are very clear that a prophet spoke for God. And that's why it was a death penalty offense. If anybody said, God told me to say this or God spoke to me, and if God had, didn't speak to them, if they didn't fit the qualifications of those tests in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, they were to be executed immediately because they would be misleading the people of God and claiming that they were speaking for God when, when, uh, when they were not. So verse 21, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word therefore moving is a word that's also used of the wind blowing or directing a sailing vessel on the water so that it's not under its own uh, control but under the control of something else. And so this is... Uh, this is what is meant by old, in Old Testament revelation, so Old Testament prophecy. So in Old Testament prophecy, it is God the Holy Spirit who is overseeing and directing the thinking and the writing of the prophet so that what they wrote was what God intended, and he guaranteed that what they wrote was without error. That is what we refer to when we talk about the infallibility, the inerrancy, the inspiration of Scripture. Now, when those writers of the Old Testament wrote, they wrote within a context. They're not just writing, you know, without reference to historical events or historical situations, but they were writing in relation to things that were happening around them so that what they wrote had direct application to an immediate set of circumstances, but the things that were happening sometimes were designed by God in his sovereignty and his oversight to have significance that went beyond the immediate understanding of that the prophet had at that time or the immediate circumstances uh, of history. And so that is what is sometimes referred to today by scholars as, um, as census plenior. Uh, it's a Latin term. It just means the full a uh, fuller sense of the passage. That there was an immediate context meaning, but there were implications there that might not have been in the mind of the writer, but they're they're there. So that later, God the Holy Spirit picks it up and uses it in a in a distinct way when it comes into the uh, use in the Old Testament, or rather in the New Testament. Now another thing that I picked up and learned this this uh, last week, and wish I had time to go study through all these kinds of things, is that over the last 10 or 15 years, there have been uh, a couple of dissertations, major dissertations, significant dissertations written at major uh, universities uh, in England and in Europe that have addressed the issue of Old t- of how the rabbis in the first century prior to the destruction of the second temple, how they handled scripture. And these dissertations have demonstrated uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the way that the rabbis prior to 70 A.D. quoted scripture and handled scripture was very different from what it became by the second century and even later into the uh into the present era, into the church age. So uh, this is very important. And what they discover is that the rabbinical exegesis and interpretation was much tighter and much more consistent with what we refer to as literal interpretation of Scripture. That's why in the series I did over Christmas, when I talked about uh, Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, connecting that to the uh, birth of Jesus and Christmas and everything, that, it, that the at the time of Jesus and just prior to that, in the last two or three centuries before Christ, when we can look at uh, the Talmud, Mishnah, um, we can look at various uh, Midrash writings that come from that period of time, we can see that passages that Christians consistently take as messianic, Genesis 3.15, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, passages like that, that these passages were understood by rabbis at the time of Jesus to be specifically and literally referring to the coming of the Messiah. Whereas by 1,000 A.D., 1,000 years later, there were different shifts that took place in rabbinical interpretation that became much more allegorical. Uh, you have the development of Kabbalah, of Kabbalah, rather. Uh, and some of you are familiar with that. There's a number of uh, people in Hollywood who, uh, trying to find some hope or meaning in life, get caught up in the mysticism of K- Kabbalah. And Kabbalah, mixed with some other things, is at the root of the thinking and the theology of the Haradim, which is a term referring to the hyper-Orthodox in Judaism. And so as you as you look at the Kabbalah, one of the ways they would interpret the Bible is assign a number to every letter. And then you read through the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew sentence and you give every letter a value and then you add up the numbers and that gives you another number and then you interpret that number and this gives you some sort of, great insight into some truth. It doesn't have anything to do with the literal meaning of the words, the structures of the sentence, the stories, or anything like that. That's just sort of a surface text, and what we need to do is get way behind that to some sort of mystical meaning. That kind of thing also went on in the early church as a result of the influence of Neoplatonism. And with Neoplatonism, you had in Platonic thought, you had the distinction between the material and the immaterial. I touched on this a little bit Sunday morning when we were going through Colossians and the uh Colossian heresy, which was sort of an early form of Gnosticism, uh what's called proto-Gnosticism, like a prototype. It's the early uh, early, early version that was drifting around early versions that were drifting around the Greek uh Greek end of the Roman Empire. Uh, in the first century. And so you have this uh, division between the literal and the spiritual. And by the third, late second, early third century of the church age, you have uh, one of the early church fathers by the name of Origen, who is mostly introduced to a lot of bad stuff. He did a few good things, but a lot of bad things. He brings a Platonism into the thinking of Christianity, and looks at the text and says, well, you have, just as you have a body, a soul, and a spirit, so the text has the physical meaning, the soul meaning, and then the spiritual meaning. But the spiritual meaning doesn't have anything to do with what the literal meaning of the text has. You just you go through various uh, um, gymnastics, to try to get to some sort of spiritual meaning in, in the text, and it has nothing to do with whatever's there. So in essence, I like to call this just making it up as you go along. It, it sort of uh, uh, contemplates your navel until uh, you can't uh, maintain consciousness anymore, and then you have some great flash of insight into what this means, and everybody thinks you're brilliant. Uh, that was typical in the early church, and that kind of thing also became prevalent in a lot of in a, in a lot of Judaism. Now, in Judaism, there was a development of a in the Middle Ages. Uh, there was a development of this idea of a fourfold meaning of Scripture, not like uh, what we have in with Origin, where there was a a threefold meaning of the text—body, soul, spirit—but uh, in Judaism, they developed this fourfold meaning, which and they used the acronym from the Hebrew word Pardis, which is the word for paradise. And so you had the at P, remember there aren't any vowels, so ignore the vowels, P-R-D-S. And the first meaning was "peshat," which had to do with the simple or the literal meaning. If uh, God told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and that's what God meant, leave Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, Remeds is a suggestion, and this has the idea of, of something that is important. It sort of reminds you of something else. The third meaning is called drash, which was investigation, and that you would investigate the meaning of the text. This is close to what we do in terms of exegesis, doing grammatical historical analysis of the text. And then the last was Saad, which is, means mystery, and this is kind of, uh, what this, this particular writer is Emil, uh, Emil Schurer, who wrote a classic five volume, it's now it's in five volumes, I think originally it was three huge volumes, in the, uh, late 19th century, called The History of the Jewish People in the Time of Christ. Classic work, That uh, many, many people on both sides, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Christian, go to this because of the massive amount of research that he did on uh, the Jewish people in the first century. And so he writes this uh, this is his, this is a quote from him saying that uh, this last, the mystery is the theosophic meaning. This is what we would call the, you know, has nothing to do with the literal meaning. It's the result of of uh, some sort of mystical, spiritual insight uh, into the text. Now, he says that that New Testament writers applied a way of approach to the interpretation of Scripture that is similar but different to these four ways. And um, Schurer says, in saying this, however, must be remarked that the exegetic metho- exegetical method prax- practiced in the New Testament when compared with the usual Jewish method, is distinguished from it by its great Enlightenment. The apostles and the Christian authors in general were preserved from the extravagances of Jewish exegesis by the regulative norm of the gospel. Now, to put that in my language, what happened is because they don't divorce themselves from the literal meaning of the text, even though they got into some speculative and mystical stuff, they still ultimately had uh, some anchor down into the literal meaning uh, literal meaning of the text. Uh, Schurer goes on to say, Jewish exegesis, however from which such a regulatory was absent, degenerated into the most capricious pluralities. From its standpoint, I, that is, the transposition of words into numbers, or of numbers into words for the purpose of obtaining the most astonishing disclosures, was by no means strange and quite in accordance with its spirit. And if any of you are familiar with the, some of the, there have been a couple of different books that have come out on the Bible code, Bible code is just this kind of a thing. It's that we can take all all the words in the in the Hebrew Bible, string them all together without any spaces, and we can count every word, run it through a computer, and start doing number skip sequence. Uh, in in code identification where you try to make sense out of every, take every third letter, every fourth letter, but with a computer you can pick every 1,760 second letter. And sooner or later, by doing this kind of number sequence code code skipping, or uh, letter skipping, you can come, eventually you'll come up with words that make sense. So they predict the assassination of JFK and um, the assassination of uh, Anwar Sadat and the uh, lots of other things that that uh, that are discovered by looking at this. The trouble is there aren't any two Hebrew manuscripts that are the same because of spelling differences, because of what they call matris lectionis, which were consonants that were inserted to stand as a vowel, uh, some ma- manuscripts had some of those in early. So there's there's no two Hebrew manuscripts that are the same. So if you just insert five five letters at random anywhere through the uh, through the New Testament or change I mean through the Old Testament or change the spelling five or six times, uh, you screw up the whole number skip. I mean it just all of a sudden it becomes meaningless. And so the big question is what text are you using that is the definitive text? Because no Old Testament scholar, Christian or Jewish has ever identified the Old Testament text. So that's your major problem. But when you have a mystical approach to Scripture and a superstitious approach to God's revelation, that's the kind of nonsense that you get into. But as Schurer pointed out, these four ways are evidenced in a much more guarded and conservative uh, quote, uh, a record of scripture, quotation of uh, Old Testament and New Testament, in in the way rabbis in the first century, prior to the uh, destruction of the temple, used the Old Testament. This is evidence in the Bible. I went through this some last time, and that was a good flyover, and I'm going to add some interesting little things tonight, and then hopefully we'll have time, probably not, and uh, get into the application in the passage. So last time I said the first use is literal prophecy, literal fulfillment. This is where you go to the Old Testament, and it's clearly making a statement about something that will happen in the future. It's clearly a prophecy. And the classic example of that is Micah 5.2, which predicts that out of Bethlehem, the city of David, the Messiah will come. He's the one who's identified at the end of verse 2 as the one whose goings forth are from old, Kedem in the Hebrew, from everlasting, Olam. And when Kedem and Olam are used together, uh, it indicates time without end. Uh, and so this clearly indicates that the one who would be born in Bethlehem, that would be the future ruler of Israel, was one who didn't have a temporal beginning, but was around from all eternity. So this is a literal prophecy, and it's literally fulfilled when Jesus is born to Mary in Bethlehem. So that's a pretty easy one to understand. Now, there are a lot of Old Testament prophecies that fit this literal prophecy, literal fulfillment pattern. You have Psalm 22, uh, Psalm 110:1, 1, which describes the Messiah seated at the right hand of God; Isaiah 7:14, the virgin birth; Isaiah 9:1 and 2; um, I could put Isaiah 9:17 in there; Isaiah 40:3; uh, Isaiah 42:1 through 4; Isaiah 52 and 53; uh, Isaiah 61:1 and 2; uh, Zechariah 9:9, 9, 9, that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, Zechariah 14, 11, 4 through 14, which is a backdrop to what we what we see referenced in Acts 1, is that Messiah would be sold out or betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And Malachi 3, 1, that there would be a forerunner like Elijah that would come announcing the coming of the Messiah. So those are just some passages. There's numerous others that are literal prophecy, literal fulfillment but when most people sit down and they read their bible and they and it says and this was fulfilled they think it's this but there's three other ways that this was fulfilled is used so so we think in a in a wrong literal way uh, this is not what literal interpretation means literal interpretation is often mischaracterized as some sort of wooden uh, view of interpretation that doesn't take into account uh, usage of figures of speech, metaphors, similes, or idioms. And this is obviously an idiomatic use, and we find it in many places. And in this, illust- in this illustration, I'm, all the passages I'm quoting are from the same author, Matthew, in the same chapter. He will say it is fulfilled four times in Matthew chapter 2, And only one of them has to do with a literal prophecy that is literally fulfilled. Now, the second kind is what has been termed literal. It's a literal historical event that has a typological fulfillment. Now, the word type comes from the Greek word tupos, which has to do with the mark of something. Uh, For example, you take a seal and you impress it in soft wax that leaves a mark or an impression that is the reverse of what's on the seal. So the seal is the is the um, uh, antitype, and the mark in the wax is the type. So it has to do with shadow and reflection, and when you were studying... Uh, literature, if you had a teacher that taught you anything, you learned about foreshadowing in literature and stories and movies and TV shows and things like that. And that's what a typology is, is that God built into a number of different things in the Old Testament, various patterns or shadows that would teach certain things about his plan and would teach certain things about the Messiah so that when the Messiah came he would be uh, easily identified. That's what a type is. It's not an application. It is a pattern recognition. So Matthew 2.15 we have the statement related to uh, the magi uh, that uh, and the magi coming to Herod and telling him where's, where is the uh, Messiah going to be born, we saw the previous passage, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Then uh, Herod told them, uh, go and on your way back, come and tell me so that I can worship him too. Well, they were warned by an angel, and so they didn't go back to Herod. And Herod then, in order to prevent this young child from growing up to be the king of the Jews, because he was the king of the Jews and he didn't couldn't stand any competition, uh, he was so paranoid, that uh, the angel also warned Joseph and that they need to take the baby and to flee to Egypt. And so they did until Herod died, and which wasn't very long. And then Herod, then Herod was succeeded and, um, that still provided a somewhat dangerous, uh, circumstance and situation in, um, in, in Judah. And so, uh, Joseph was told to go back, but to go home and to do it secretly, and he went back to Nazareth. So this is a reference to the leaving of Egypt and going home, uh, that Joseph and Mary were there, that is, in Egypt, until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord. Notice that fulfillment terminology again. And it was spoken by the Lord the, through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is really good stuff. This is the kind of stuff I just love to study. In Hosea 11.1, 1, we have a statement by Hosea in the context. That, you know, we always get confused when we have these chapter divisions. Try to read the context at the end of the chapter before and what comes after, because a lot of times it they just messes up your train of thought and context if you if you just look at that one verse. In the context of Hosea 10 and Hosea 11, it's referring historically to what God did in redeeming the the uh, Israelites from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. And so Hosea 11:1 is a historical reference. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Notice it's a second person, I mean third person singular pronoun. So him is referring to the nation in a collective sense and out of egypt i called my son well that's a reference back to to god's statement to moses in exodus chapter 4 that uh israel was his firstborn son so this is nothing more than a historical statement based on the facts of what happened in 1446 bc out of egypt i called my son but matthew takes this and he uh, he he takes it and he uh relates it to Jesus. This is a pattern. Well, why do you think Hosea did that? Simple answer. Well, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But that's not how it works, folks. It's not just like, oh, gosh, Holy Spirit gave me a flash, and I'm just going to say this. Tell what had happened. These prophets are students of the Scripture. They're writing from their own personality, their own experience, and their own background. And so this statement that he makes about uh, the coming out of Egypt has a, a an extremely important background. I wonder why that line's in there. We'll find out. Oh, I know why. Okay, here's Numbers 2321. Turn with me to Numbers. Let's go back to Numbers. This is good stuff. This is why, as you see here, we build and build and build on what we've studied and learned before. You remember back in December, I did a series... Christmas series on messianic prophecy, and one of the important prophecies uh, related to, or a couple of the important prophecies related to the Messiah, came out of these really bizarre uh, prophecies made by this guy Balaam, uh, in Numbers twenty-three and twenty-four, who's mostly a false prophet. He it, it, people say, was well, he saved? Probably, but he's 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 a false prophet, and so uh, Balak, who's the uh, king of Moab has hired Balaam to curse Israel, but God won't let him do it. And th- four different times he tries to to curse Israel, and each time God gives him something else to say, and he ends up having to s- saying what God wanted him to say, despite the fact that he was really trying to curse curse Israel. Now in these prophecies what is clear is that Israel as a collective whole is being used as a pattern for the Messiah. Now, I've also taught that Israel as a collective whole and their experience with God is also a pattern of the spiritual life for the church-age believer. I think that's, that's true. But in this, Israel is used in this context as a picture of, of the Messiah, so we have this uh, prophetic uh, aspect to this, and we're going to go back to look at Numbers 23, verse 21. And what you, what I want you to notice here is the use of second, I mean, of third person singular pronouns. Third person singular pronouns. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, that the he there is referring to, to God. goes back to verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot reverse it. That's that's um, uh, Balaam's uh, mea culpa. Uh, 21. He said, "He has not observed iniquity; that is, God has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has He seen wickedness in Israel." Now, I've highlighted Israel and Jacob in blue because, in synonymous parallelism here, Jacob and Israel are parallel to each other. He has not seen iniquity, nor has he has not observed iniquity, is parallel to, nor has he seen wickedness. This is classic Hebrew poetry of synonymous parallelism where the second line repeats what's in the first line with synonyms to give a full picture of what is being, what is being said. So that Jacob and Israel, Jacob is not referring to the literal individual Jacob, but is referring to the nation Israel. Israel is the name that was given to Jacob by God after he wrestled with him at at Peniel. And so here, Jacob and Israel are used as a title or name for the whole of the uh, Jewish people. And then we read, The Lord his God is with him. And the shout of a king is with him, literally, in the Hebrew. But in most of your English translations, to make it mean some sense in English, they usually translate the, the last line there, among them because Israel is being referred to as a just like we saw in, in Hosea eleven one, collectively by a singular pronoun. Now that's not always true, but it is true in a lot of places. However uh, I can't believe it. In Numbers twenty three twenty two we read that there's a shift. From a singular pronoun to a plural pronoun. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. Now what we read in verse, verses 22 and following is that God brings them out of Egypt. God has strength like a wild ox. So he's going, like a wild ox is extremely strong and powerful. So this image is used of God and his power to protect, uh, protect Israel. Look down at verse 24. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks of the blood of the slain. So that the people, that is, though the, the him and the them that we referred to earlier, are compar- God's power that protects them is like a wild ox. They're uh, compared to a lion or lioness. In that particular, uh, in that particular passage, and the other thing that we need—I uh, want to emphasize here—is that God says in this passage, God brings them out of Egypt. That's the historical event of the Exodus. Now, this is where things get really fun. In Numbers twenty-four seven, we get into Balaam's um, third prophecy. I think I said four prophecies earlier. I meant misspoke. I meant three. Or uh, Yeah. I, no, there are four prophecies. So we get into, that was the second prophecy that I just mentioned. And now I want to get into the, um, yeah, the third prophecy in the first part of chapter 24. So in verse 1, Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his oracle and makes another uh, prophetic statement. Now in verse 7, he says related to... Um, uh, he says, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, he shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. That has to do with the universal blessing of Israel. His king, now this refers to the king of Israel, shall be higher than God. Now, in a lot of translations as I pointed out in, back over Christmas when we studied this, um, a lot of English translations have agag. And that's what you find in the Masoretic text. But remember, in Hebrew, originally, there were no consonants. So all you had was GG. So that can be just about anything. Now, the Masoretic scribes inserted the vowels here around the, I don't know when they, they, they got into this, but sometime much after the time of Christ. And there was a tendency, a trend among the the Masoretes and rabbis, much later on, five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years after Christ, to demessiah, demessianize, if that's a word, to remove messianic implications as much as they could. So, if you translate this Agag, then it's fulfilled historically when Saul defeated Agag and. 1 Samuel chapter 16. But if this is Gog, then this is an, a, a reference to the future when the Messiah will defeat the future enemy of Israel mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that's identified as Gog. And then the, the, the fact that this is a messianic prophecy then is, is extremely clear as it is from other, other parts of this particular prophecy. So he says, the king shall be higher than Gog. Gog. And his kingdom shall be exalted. This is the kingdom of the of the Messiah. His kingdom, is going, he will rule over all of the nations. And then verse 8 says, God brings him out of Egypt. Not them, which is what was said in verse 20, 22 of the last chapter. But now it is God brings him out of Egypt. And it is he, the Messiah, that has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with arrows. God is going to bring them out of Egypt. That is the historical event. That's a historical event, and, and Hosea would have been aware of this prophecy, and that is part of the backdrop to understanding Hosea 11.1. 1. Now the next question is, one other thing before we get to the next question, in this passage, we also see that God is now comparing in the previous in 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 the the second vision, God is comparing israel God's power is like the horns of a wild ox, and Israel was supposed to be like a lion. Now it is the Messiah who is like the horns of a wild ox, and it is the Messiah who is like a lion in 23-24. And and the parallelism is is pronounced here because what God is showing us is that that Israel as a corporate body is teaching us things and stands for certain things in relationship to the Messiah. And the idea that uh, here that we have he bows down, he lies down like a lion, it goes back to The prophecy of Jacob over Judah in Genesis 49.10, about that the scepter would not depart from between his feet, that then refers to Judah as the Lion of Judah, refers to the Messiah as the Lion of Judah. And, of course, the last line, blessed is he who blesses you and cursed is he who curses you, is from Genesis 12.2. That's part of the Abrahamic promise, the promise God made to Abraham uh, that those who bless him and his descendants would be blessed and those who curse him and his descendants would be cursed. And so now we ask the question in relationship to Hosea 11 and Matthew's use in Matthew chapter 2, why didn't Matthew just quote from Numbers uh, 20, uh, 24-7? Because there's something that said in Hosea 11 1, that is the emphasis. It's not just that he, the Messiah or that Jesus comes up from Egypt, that fits that pattern, but it's that he is my son. It's connecting to these statements from um, uh, Psalm two that he that uh, he is my son. Today I have uh, uh, begotten him. Uh, these other passages in the Old Testament, the birth passages. Of the the virgin birth in isaiah seven fourteen and uh, isaiah uh, nine uh, nine seventeen that that there will be this son who will be born a child will be born a son is given to us and so Ho- hosea connects the messianic prophecy of numbers twenty four seven and eight uh, N- numbers twenty four eight god bring him out of egypt with the Sonship prophecies related to the Messiah. So that's our historical event with a typical fulfillment. Now, there's a few other things I want to say about this. Let's just cover these briefly before we close tonight, and we'll come back and look at the last two next time. In Isaiah 29:13, this is another example where Israel has become uh, religious in Isaiah 29:13 but only in an external or outward sense, and he's only obeying man made commandments while he ignores the real intent of the Torah. And that's quoted in Matthew fifteen, seventy-nine, when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and their traditions with fitting the pattern uh, that is laid down in Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. Isaiah six ten, six verse ten Speaks of Isaiah's ministry that is going, that would be mostly rejected, and that's quoted in, uh, John 12, 39 to 40 as a type of the Messiah's ministry that would also be largely rejected. Psalm 118, 22 to 23 talks about the rejected stone, which is then typologically applied to Jesus in Matthew 21, 42 that rejection of the Messianic stone that becomes a stone of stumbling. And then Exodus 12, uh, 46, which is a prohibition against breaking any bone of the Passover lamb, is quoted as a type in John nineteen thirty six, that Jesus, as the Lamb of God hanging on the cross, did not have any of his bones broken. So that fits that pattern. Now, next time I'll come back, look at the uh, last two, which are also important. I've dug out a few more interesting things related to them. And then we'll start applying this to our understanding of Peter's rationale. As I think it's very important to understand what Peter is saying, why he's saying it, and how he's saying it. And it's very important to understand No, this pattern is followed again and again all the way through the book of Acts, using the Old Testament the same way. It's never criticized, never condemned, never thought of as wrong, but is always under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, I think that's extremely important for understanding what Peter is doing in this in this episode in Acts chapter one. So we will come back finish this up next time. It's also important to understand these things because in Romans, remember I said this last Thursday night in Romans one where we've got this passage coming up with this quotation of Habakkuk uh, two four in Romans one sixteen and seventeen. And you, we gotta go through the whole thing there. So you're just gonna get overloaded right now with review and review and review on, on these four ways that they're being used. I'll do it in a more summary fashion on Thursday night with Romans. I didn't get there at all last week, but we'll hit it again. I can't, I'm not gonna go through the detail, but I have to do it enough because this is a standalone series. Romans is a standalone series. And so if somebody's listening to Romans, they have to be able to get the same material if they're not, because people next week who are listening to the tapes of Romans without listening to Acts won't get the connection. So uh, we're going to have to put some notes out on the website so people will do that. And otherwise, we'll just go nuts just doing the same thing every night. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, come to a greater understanding of uh, the doctrine of inspiration and infallibility of Scripture and how prophecy has been fulfilled and how you designed all of these things from eternity past and um, laid out everything in such a precise manner and with such a perfect fulfillment. And we pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us in our faith, and in your word as we study these things as well as understanding how all of these things help us to more more completely, more accurately understand your word. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen.